We are currently in a study of John's Gospel, and we'll be wrapping up this chapter this week. So I'm going to read an extended passage to us, uh, John 5, 18 through 47. Follow along with me, please. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has not given him authority, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. 
For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. So today uh, we encounter for the first time in our study of John an extended monologue from Jesus himself. This has not happened up until this point. Jesus has certainly said a few things about himself, but they've been a bit more veiled, honestly. Perhaps the most explicit thing that he has said thus far was with the woman at the well when she said, I know the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. But that's really about it in terms of just like explicit commentary on who he is and what he has come to do. Most of the things we've learned about Jesus thus far have come not from the mouth of Jesus, but they have come from John, who's writing this gospel, right? If you remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who is Jesus? Who does he say that he is? What does he say of himself? And why is he doing the things that he's doing A common new atheist charge levied against Jesus is that he never actually claimed to be God. That uh, that really is only here in John's gospel and in the writing of Paul. And it's, it's really more those guys that claimed that he was God and not Jesus himself. Again, in John's prologue, chapter one, John begins by saying that Jesus is divine, right? What I just said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In other words, He is the divine Logos, the divine Word of God, and through Him all things were made, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Yes, those were John's words. And Paul says, among uh, many things, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In the Greek, He is the icon of the invisible God. Or in other words... He's God. Or in John's words, he is God. And so while it's somewhat true to say that Jesus never like gathers his, father, his followers around and says, hey, hey, listen up, I'm God. Right? There's never a moment that's exactly like that. It is not true to say that Jesus did not personally claim divinity. And the things he says of himself are clearly taken by the Jews to be claims of divinity. Look with me at verse 18 in our text today. It begins, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but what? He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So clearly, the way that they received what he was saying was that he was saying, I am God, or that God and I are the same, or that God and I are on the same level. But recognize, and and this is part of what he's getting at here in this monologue, it's one thing to claim something about yourself. It's another thing to give evidence in your life that verifies your identity. Right? It's one thing to say something about yourself. It's another thing to give evidence in your life that verifies your identity. Right? I don't have to gather people up and go, hey, guys, I have five daughters. Why? Because 
when you see our van roll up and it looks like a clown car of people getting out, you go, oh, this guy's got a lot of daughters, right? The evidence of my life verifies that part of my identity. And what's more important, by the way, that a person claims something verbally about himself or herself or that the evidence of, the, of their life points to or verifies their identity. If you're a doctor, it's far more important that the evidence of your life verifies your identity, right, than it is that you have a piece of paper on the wall or that you claim something about yourself. And good grief, how many people have there been throughout history who have claimed to be God? or who have claimed to be the Messiah even, and yet the evidence of their life did not verify their claim. Jesus here is clearly leading with power. If you remember, part of the way John structured his gospel here is around different signs or these miraculous works that verify the identity of Jesus as the Christ. So Jesus is leading with power, and it is the experience of that power that verifies his identity. He's giving all the explanation that's needed. So today I want to look at three things here in this monologue, three things that Jesus says about himself. And in a way, these are three themes that we see interwoven throughout John's gospel. And I think these are critical if we're going to understand the work of Christ and understand his relationship to the Father. And let me run them down real quick, and then we'll back up and go through them a bit. But first of all, Jesus says that he is not a separate God. He does not claim to be some other God. Verse 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Secondly, he says that he is a judge. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He's a judge. And then third, his works testify to his identity. He says in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he's not a separate God. He is a judge. His works testify to his identity. Three claims that Jesus is making about himself here in John 5. So up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has obviously already been making waves in Jerusalem. Most notably, he caused a big scene at the temple just a few months prior to this when he ran out all the animals and the money changers from the court of the Gentiles during Passover. But now he's back in Jerusalem, and once again, he's causing problems, right? This time, he healed an invalid on the Sabbath. This is what we looked at at the beginning of chapter 5 this past week. And not only did he heal this man on the Sabbath, but he instructed him to take up his bed and leave, to, to literally like roll up this straw mat that he was laying on and, and, to, and to go carrying it. And according to Jewish law, that was a form of work. And it was unlawful to perform that form of work on the Sabbath. It was forbidden. So when the Jews see this guy walking around carrying his bed, rather than celebrate, 
that a man has been healed of a lifelong illness. The Jewish leaders are incensed that this act has been performed on this most holy day. Look again with me at verse 15, 16. Look at verse 16 in particular. This was why the Jews were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Never mind the fact that what he was doing was good and restorative and life-changing to people. It's on the Sabbath, guys, and so it's out of bounds. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, Jesus does something here that goes right over our heads as American Christians. He calls God Father. He calls him his Father, which is something many of us do as well, right? Especially in prayer. We have been taught to pray to the Father and that God is our Father as well. In fact, the way Jesus teaches us to pray is to pray to our Father, or what is known as the Lord's Prayer, right? But realize, the Jews did not have a Trinitarian theology, right? They didn't have a Trinitarian theology. In their view, there was not a Godhead and, and where there were three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, there's only God, and, and in Hebrew, there are two primary words for the Hebrew God. The first one is Elohim. Elohim, which is just a word that means God. It's a common word that we find in the Old Testament. And, and then the second word for God, and perhaps the most common word for God that we find in the Old Testament, is something that is known in Greek as the Tetragrammaton, the Tetragrammaton, and it's spelled like this, Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H. And, and this is found something like 6,800 times in the pages of the Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton, which is just Greek, it, for, it means four letters, over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. Uh, there are no vowels, obviously, here. And this was not something that the Jews would say. This was not a word that they would try to pronounce. And so over the centuries, as people have gotten a hold of this, they've tried to figure out how to pronounce it. And even to this day, there is mass disagreement over how this word should be said. And some would say you shouldn't even say it because the Jews didn't. Many today will say Yahweh, right? That's probably the most common thing that we hear. Um, you will also hear people say Yahuwah or Yahuwah. And if you look in your Bible, more than likely, you're not going to find this in the pages of the Old Testament, even though it's there over 6,800 times. What you're going to find, actually, in the English is the word Lord. And most often in our modern Bibles, the word Lord is going to be capitalized. Um, and, and that is sort of a code to indicate to you that the word behind that all caps word Lord is Yahweh. Um, 
And one of the reasons why they do that, they capitalize it, is because there is another Hebrew word that we do find in the Bible uh, that's this, Adonai, which also means Lord. And so this gets capitalized so that you're aware that the word is Yahweh as opposed to Adonai. One Latinized pronunciation of this word uh, pops up in the Middle Ages, um, and you might be familiar with it as well, and it's spelled like this. And we would say, Jehovah. Um, probably more than likely that was meant to be pronounced something like Yahuwah. Um, but that doesn't come from the Hebrew. That's not something you would find in the original Hebrew text of the Bible. That's a Latinization of the Tetragrammaton. Also, uh, the word Yahweh gets partnered with lots of words throughout the Old Testament to say things like um, uh, Lord of hosts or uh, Lord who heals. And so you've probably heard things like Jehovah Jireh, right? Things like that. Or my favorite coffee shop, Jehovah Java. Um, there's a whole world of terrible Christian coffee shop pun names. Hebrews, yeah. But then Jesus comes along from this culture where we don't even say this word, and we certainly don't presume to call God our Father. And Jesus comes along, and here in John, he uses the Greek word pater, which is just the word for father. He will also at times use the Aramaic word Abba, which is more like a private and intimate name for one's father. It's almost like a, like a pet name that you would call your own father. And, and, and what we tend to miss in all of this is that this was just kind of unheard of. It's just unheard of, and it was received by the uber-religious Jews as being blasphemous, right? Who in the world does this guy think he is? Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now notice that verse 18 is John's commentary. But those aren't the words of the Jews. They're not the words of Jesus. John is telling us that Jesus was, in fact, making himself equal with God by calling him Father, and that Jesus was, in fact, breaking Sabbath rules. Jesus knew that's what he was doing. But he even takes it a step further, Jesus does, in that he's not claiming to be a separate God that has come from the Father. He is claiming to be one with the Father. He's not a separate God. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus says, I can only do what I see the Father doing. I can't do things independent of him, which is a fascinating claim because remember, Jesus is responding to their anger that he healed somebody on the Sabbath. And basically what he's saying when he says something like this to these uber-religious Jews is, it's not just me, guys. I'm following the lead of the Father, so to condemn my actions is to condemn the actions of God himself. You might not be working on the Sabbath, but my father is working on the Sabbath, and so am I. And if you think that this one healing is something, just wait, because you're going to see the dead come back to life, Jesus says. And this foreshadows, obviously, Jesus' own resurrection, but in particular, I think Jesus' words here are meant to foreshadow the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11 um, as well. Because the resurrection of Lazarus in John's gospel is like, it's presented as like an apex moment in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, I think much of like the tension that John is intentionally creating in, in this confrontation with the Jewish leaders, a lot of that tension is building to the point of Lazarus's resurrection. And John really paints that as the final straw for these guys who are already opposed to Jesus, already maybe seeking out ways to undermine him or kill him. But really, it's once we get to Lazarus that the Pharisees step back and go, the whole world is going after him, right? In their eyes, everybody now is following Christ. But to drive this home, look at verse 23. He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So again, what I'm doing, these things are not just my works. These things are God, God's works. And Jesus is clearly equating himself in that with God. Jesus says, what I am doing is God. And if you do not honor me, you do not honor God. And as he'll say later in John, I and the Father are one. Second, he is a judge. Notice verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son this is Jesus' second significant claim here. And we've already seen this in action in that he seems to have supernatural knowledge of all people. Uh, John told us a few chapters ago that he knew what was in man. He needed no one else to tell him what was going on in people's minds and hearts or what their motives were. He already knew all of those things. And that's the kind of judge you want, right? You want a judge who sees the real truth unless you're the one on trial and you're guilty. 
And then Jesus truly sees you and me for who we are. Not just your outward actions, uh, not just your projected piety, but what's really in your heart and in your mind. Who you are when no one is watching. And so if this is true, it's frightening that he really sees us. Verse 23, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, if you want to avoid this perfect judgment that will really see you, the stuff you know is in there, if you want to avoid the judgment, believe in my Father, which is to believe in me, the Christ. Because, again, I and the Father are one. This is at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Right? This is what John said of Jesus back in chapter 3. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Why? So that no one would perish. That all would have everlasting life. And John 3, 17, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But so that the world might be saved through him. This is the reality. He is a perfect judge. And none of us can stand up under his judgment. But praise the Lord, a way has been made for us to actually avoid his judgment. Or for him to look at us and judge us as somehow being righteous. It's amazing. Verses 25 through 30 indicate that Jesus' perfect judgment extends even to the decision of raising the dead. Perhaps another foreshadowing of Lazarus. Because Jesus literally stands at the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And what Jesus says is the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Lazarus hears the voice of the Son of God and comes out of the tomb. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Again, this is... Perhaps a foreshadowing of his own resurrection, and, and certainly that of Lazarus. But, but Jesus also takes it a step further and goes all the way to the end of days. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, we don't know who these Jews are that Jesus is talking to in this moment, but, but since Jesus is in Jerusalem, the group probably included not just Pharisees, but also Sadducees who were prominent in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were the rulers in the temple at this point in time. They were the elite, wealthy uh, aristocracy among Jewish religious leaders, and they controlled what was known as the Sanhedrin right, the Jewish ruling council. And yet the Sadducees uh, did not believe that there would be a bodily resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees did not. And, and yet there are a couple of occasions here in the gospel where that seems to be a belief that Jesus wants to intentionally poke some holes in, including here. And what is so hard for them to fathom is not just that this guy is saying 
that the thing they don't believe will happen will happen, but that when it happens, that he is going to be the one judging everyone who comes out of the grave. Oh, and, and that it's by his power and his voice that they're even coming out of the grave in the first place. By the way, as an aside, it seems significant to me that he is the logos, he is the word of God, John said back in chapter one, and that it is by the logos of God that all things were created. So it doesn't seem surprising to me that it's also by the voice of the son of God that the dead would rise, right? He has this power, he says, given to him by the father. And, and, and so, so all that in mind, let's be real here for a moment. Some guy on the street tells you the same thing. What do you do? You probably respond in the same way. Yeah, right, man. Some of us think that if we had just been there, right? If I could have just seen Jesus with my own eyes, like if I could have seen his miracles, if I could have heard his voice, it'd be way easier to believe in him, right? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that most of us would not also yell, crucify him. As we watched everyone else around us seem to turn in that direction. And as we just have this innate tendency to follow the crowd and to not engage in conflict, even if we think we might be wrong. Because what he's saying here is crazy by human standards these claims of his divinity. Last claim. He says his works testify to his identity. Jesus knows, guys, that his words are hard. The truth of his identity is hard. People were resistant to it then. They're resistant to it now. But, but here's the thing. Jesus does not want us to simply take him at his word. He says two things. One is that he doesn't just testify about himself but that John the Baptist, who to many was a beloved figure at this point in time, had also testified about him, right? John's talked about this already. John was this forerunner to Christ. Uh, behold the Lamb of God, right, who takes away the sin of the world. Those are things that John said. John identified Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus says, it's not just me saying this. This guy everybody loves has also said it. But, but then second, also, Jesus says... John's testimony about me is not insignificant, but I have a greater testimony as well, and that is that the Father himself is testifying about my identity through the works that I do. And this is something that the Pharisees seem to wrestle with in John's gospel, is they wrestle with these incredible things that Jesus is doing, and they think, this has to be God, right? Or is this a demon? Like, that's, that's the conundrum that they have. They're, they're, they're really wanting to pin this on the devil. And yet some of them are going, but can the devil do that? Is that even within his power? This is the, in, uh, the internal argument that many of the Pharisees have at this point. Jesus says, it's not just me saying this. It's not even John alone saying this. My works are the Father testifying 
about my identity. So he goes even further at this point. And he basically says, let's say you don't believe John. And let's say you don't believe that the works that I've done are from the Father. Well, there's actually another one who testifies about me as well. And he's the one you guys really worship. Moses. Later in John's gospel, when Jesus heals a blind man in chapter 9, the blind man is speaking to them and he asks them, do you want to follow Jesus? And they say, how dare you? Our father is Moses. Isn't that fascinating? They're baffled that Jesus would call God his father, and yet they very readily call Moses their father. The Pharisees, and to a lesser extent the Sadducees, had taken to heart the lesson of the Jewish exile back in the Old Testament, which was this. Look, if we don't follow the law that God has given us through Moses, we're going to be punished, right? We had abandoned the law several hundred years prior. We had turned to false gods, and God exiled us out from this place. And we then had to return and rebuild a temple and rebuild Jerusalem. And if we don't stay true to the law, that's going to happen again. Moses, though, in the midst of all of this, is the big guy to them. It's not just God himself. They're interested in being obedient to Moses, and they have so elevated him that among all the prophets of the Old Testament, they call him the prophet, capital P. He's the big guy. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God, do you not think that I will accuse you to the, or do not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? These guys. Who believed Moses? Jesus says, no, you don't believe Moses because Moses was talking about me. Guys, to me, this should call us to examine our own hearts as well. For many of us, what we really want is the same thing that these guys want. What we really want is the glory that comes from other people. Instead of the glory that comes from God, of being adopted into his family as beloved children and forgiven of our sin and saved from death and hell. But the, the glory that comes from other men, the accolades or success or money or the things of this world, for us, those things have a tendency to be the fruit of the tree that looks so good, right? It, it looks like... It's, it's delicious, like it's going to satisfy me. It's going to meet the needs in my heart. It's what I most want. It's what I most work towards. It's what I most desire, position or title or money or significance or what other people would say about us. Like we all want our lives to matter, 
But is it because we desire to live lives that are pleasing to God, or is it because we want to live lives that are pleasing to other people around us? And so in our pursuit of that glory, we, just like these guys, have a tendency to want to turn to other men or other things and essentially turn them into icons or gods or prophets. We, we look to those who have achieved what we want to achieve, and, and we sort of make those things our goal or those people our goal to, to, to disciple ourselves or to model our lives or our actions or our decisions after the, that kind of person or those people And if we're not careful, their voices can become more significant in our heads and hearts than even the words of God himself. It's one of the reasons why so many of us are so ignorant when it comes to the Bible. It's because we have dedicated our time and attention not to studying the very words of God that he has given us, but instead the words and teachings of other people about whatever our industry is or being a mom or a dad or whatever this particular podcast happens to be saying to us because we really like this person and their teaching rather than giving our time to God himself. This amazing thing is happening here where these guys know Moses and the words of Moses backwards and forwards and yet they don't see what Moses is talking about when it's right in front of them. Listen, here's what Jesus is saying. Not only can those things, things that are outside of God himself, his son, Jesus Christ, the things of this world, uh, position, power, accolade, money, all of those kinds of things, not only can those things or people not save you, what Jesus indicates here is those are the things that will actually turn against you in the last day and become your accuser. If the true God of your life is not the God who sent his only son, who is real life, then you've got a big problem and I've got a big problem. And just like the Pharisees, man, we can make gods out of anything, can't we? Especially good things like the teaching of Moses or the law of God itself. And yet Jesus says, if you knew Moses, you would know he was talking about me all along. Bob Dylan famously sang that you have to serve somebody, and it's not just that we're obliged to serve somebody. It's like we are hardwired for worship. We are hardwired to serve something, to prostrate our life in front of something. The question is, what is it that you are actually worshiping? And a starting place is to ask, what is my time my attention, uh, my mental, emotional, spiritual energy given to? Is it the things of this world? Is it the approval of other human beings? Or is it the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth? Let us go to God in prayer this morning as we consider that question in our own lives. Father, you have shown us clearly this morning through your holy word that 
Jesus is not only the long foretold Messiah or Christ, but that he is himself God. And that this is not just something that John claims. It is what Jesus claims. It is what John the Baptist claims. It is what Moses claims. It is what you claim, Father, through the incredible works of Christ. And Lord, even though many of us know that intellectually, we are so prone to not prostrate ourselves in full worship. To your only son and to you, but instead to prostrate ourselves in front of the things of this world that not only cannot save us, but will become our accusers. And yet, your good news, your hope in this moment is so clear that through Christ alone, a way has been made for us to avoid judgment. Even though you see into our hearts and minds and know the truth of who we are and the things we've done or the things we've thought, you haven't come to condemn, but so that we might be saved. God, I pray this morning that that truly would be our hope. And we live in a world where things seem more upside down every single day. And if our hope is in things that are temporal and not in things that are eternal, our lives are going to be in consistent upheaval. And then in the end, we are going to be so disappointed. Oh Lord, help us to see, reveal the ways that we do this. And forgive us our sins, we pray. So that our hope would not be set on money or position or title or relationships or anything else as good as some of those things may be. But that our hope would be squarely in the person and work of Christ. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning?